blessing to be here this morning. Uh, it's scheduled to be at the Mabel Memorial, and uh, they had some special activity there where Brother Philip was to be here, wanted to be there. And it turns out for the fourth time that I planned to be at Mabel that it got changed. Not sure what the Lord has in mind there. Doesn't want me there or something. I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, I'm thankful to be here. Uh, there's lots of nuggets in the Minor Prophets. Uh, I've just been reading through there and uh, felt led to uh, a scripture passage that we have in Zechariah chapter 4. And uh, specifically, we want to look at the latter part of verse 6, but I'm going to read the whole chapter. Before we get into that, I just want to give you a little bit of background. Uh, if we were reading in Ezra, the latter part of, of Ezra, uh, chapter 4, uh, there was a decree made. Well, that, okay, so they're back into Jerusalem. They're starting to build a temple. The foundations have been laid. And then there's some enemies that take a report to uh, the uh, world power at that time was the, the Persians. And they took this report to the king that these people are rebelling. And so they shut things down. It was... Uh, made them cease from building the temple by force and by power is what it says in the latter part of Ezra 4. And so for uh, what it looks like, for 15 years this thing was shut down. Nothing was happening. And then God raises up, I think almost simultaneously as far as I could tell, he raised up, raises up these prophets. One was Haggai, and uh, we don't want to take time there, but Haggai, uh, or the Lord speaks through the prophet Haggai and says, why are you dwelling in your fancy houses? I'm putting my own words, and, and my house is laying there completely nothing happening. And so there was a lack of priorities there. It wasn't just because the enemy had shut them down, but uh, they did not put the effort into the Lord's work, if I, if I can uh, paraphrase that a little bit. And so at the same time, we have Zechariah, and he's prophesying. And uh, just briefly looking at chapter 3 of Zechariah, where he has this vision of Joshua, the high priest. And uh, Satan is standing at his right hand, resisting him. So we see the reality of what is happening in the Lord's work is the resisting forces of evil that were standing in the way. And that Joshua symbolically here is uh, clothed with filthy garments. And it's a beautiful thing where uh, these garments are taken away and it's a change for, for uh, fair uh, garments or for clean garments and this was the work of the Lord and I'd, I'd like to right from the onset of the, the message here this morning we understand if we're battling with something whether it's uh, forces of evil against us or battling with sin or whatever it might be 
It must be the Lord that takes care of it. It must be the Lord that deals with it. And we understand that clearly here this morning. And then getting into Zechariah chapter 4, I'm going to read this chapter. So some beautiful uh, typology here, I think, and I don't profess to understand it all, but uh, it's, uh, there's so, so many beautiful nuggets we have in the minor prophets that we sometimes maybe can overlook. Zechariah 4.1 And the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that wakened out of his sleep. And he said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick, all of gold, with a bow upon the top of it, and seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof and two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, and the other upon the left side thereof. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? And the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. And he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel, thou shalt be become a plain, and shalt bring forth the headstone thereof, with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace, unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of the house, his hands shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the whole earth. Then answered I and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said unto them, what be these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes empty the gold, golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me and said, Knowest thou not what these be? I said, No, my Lord. He, then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And so we have this prophecy, and I think I've said it before. Some of you have maybe heard me say before, so many uh, Old Testament prophecies are intermeshing with uh, something that was current for their time. And then comes in also uh, the, the, the great importance of the time of Christ. And maybe I don't see it as clearly here, but oftentimes there's end time events that are played into the same prophecy. And that's uh, just our Lord that's capable of doing that. And so... I definitely see that this was something that was prevalent, or relevant, I should say, for the time of uh, which the prophecy was given. And uh, I'm not an artist here. We could maybe draw a candlestick. Uh, so we have here this, and then... Uh, This is uh, like the Old Testament uh, 
candlestick. There's seven of them. Uh, they had that, and those were to be uh, burning all the time. They were not to go out. There was, somebody was responsible to make sure that there was all there, that they would be continuously burning in the temple. Of course, over this time, that would have been impossibility because there was no temple. But we have this vision, and it's a little hard for me to picture just exactly what the prophet saw there, but we could put a bowl on top of this here, and then from the bowl you have a, a pipe coming in from this side and a pipe from that side filling that bowl. Uh, they were golden pipes, and then out of the bowl you had seven little pipes coming, and those seven pipes were continually filling that uh, those seven lamps or those seven candles uh, with oil, and the, those olive trees were were continually producing oil. So it was was something that was perpetually there to provide what was needed, and I think that that's uh, important. We we capture that was perpetually there to provide what was needed uh, and uh, we see that those olive trees that were providing the oil were the two anointed ones that stand before the Lord the whole earth and if we would go to the time that this prophecy was given we could say one was Joshua Joshua was a high priest over that time and this was the year 520 BC 520 years before Christ, and uh, there was there was a time of discouragement because they had started out, they started building, and there was resistance, and for 15 years this thing was laying there. Can you imagine driving by there uh, for 15 years and seeing these foundations and nothing more there? And and this is bothering. It would bother me. A work that's incompleted. I don't know if you're that way, but it bothers me when there's something there and it just stays there. Somehow you can't get around. And that's what was happening for, for 15 years. And then the other anointed one would be Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was the governor of Judah over that time. And Zerubbabel was the one that had the, the responsibility of making sure this temple gets done. And so we see the prophetic message here was given to Zerubbabel was given to the people. And in verse 9 we have it beautifully said, the hands of Zerubbabel that laid the foundations, his hands will also finish it. The promise from God that his work was going to go forth. And uh, God doing his work through mortal men. Uh, I was meditating a little bit and comparing this time of building the temple with the time of Solomon. The time of Solomon, uh, his father David, through his military campaigns, had gained power throughout the, the world surrounding him and had basically provided the materials that Solomon had to just put in place to get this thing built. There was an extreme abundance of, of material things available for Solomon. With Zerubbabel, it was not that way. I think that maybe there were some provisions made. Well, I know there was from from the uh, the Persian Empire, but they did not have the tremendous. There was thousands and thousands and thousands of people that were dispatched to build the Temple of Solomon, and uh, there was uh, I don't know the numbers, but there wasn't many people. There wasn't a whole 
whole lot of resources. And so in a sense, it had to be the work of God. It was a miracle that the temple was rebuilt again. And it, it was, uh, I think I'm now focusing to what uh, I want to be the main thrust of the message this morning. The word of the Lord for us as it was for them. It's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. And that's how the Lord wants to do his work. My dear people, this morning there's a work. There's a work of the Lord that needs to be done. And we need to understand how the Lord wants to do it. And we could think about those two anointed ones standing before the Lord of the whole earth. We could go back to the time of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah was a prophet of God and he was used, he was anointed in a mighty way to carry out the work of the Lord in a very difficult time of apostasy and how God revealed himself through Elijah. And then, of course, when Elijah was leaving, Elisha was asking for a double portion of the spirit of Elijah. And it was the spirit of the Lord that came upon Elisha, and Elisha was a mighty man of God in his day and age, uh, was used in a mighty way. And we could move forward then to the time of Christ, and and Elijah... uh, the type of Elijah was John the Baptist and how God used John the Baptist and how there was tremendous revival through John the Baptist, how these people were coming into the wilderness and were being baptized and they were repenting from their sins. How, how can you explain that? Is there any human way to explain what was going on that all these people were coming and confessing their sins and, and repenting in the time of John the Baptist? It was a mighty working of God that was bringing those people there. And, and he was preparing the way for the Lord Jesus. That was his, his, uh, what his job description was. And of course, we all know here this morning that the, uh, the word Christ or the word Messiah, the word Messiah is a, is a Hebrew, the word Christ is Greek, and it means the anointed one. And we look at the life of Christ and and. I, I challenge you to look at the life of Christ in this way, that when he came down on earth, he left his divinity aside, and the power that you see that he worked with was power that we have to our disposition. And I say that to say that in, in my time of working in Latin America, uh, especially Guatemala, we would point people to the beauty of, of Christ and to follow him. they say, well, he was God. He could do that. But... I'm not here at all denying this morning that Jesus Christ is God and he is Lord, he is divine. But he tells us to follow him. So he's not asking us to do something that he uh, himself did not have access to. And see, what, what I see the Lord Jesus did as he walked here on this earth, that he uh, emptied himself of any claim to divinity and the, the divine acts that he did was because he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was the anointed one. And the power that we see, that beautiful life, and that life of serving, that life of, of uh, just preparing the way for the, the church and, and uh, of giving himself for a, a sacrifice for sin, and the way that he healed people and the way that he cast out demons, he's clearly said that, and I'm not going to turn to it, but in, in Matthew chapter 12 he said, if, but if I by the, 
by the hand of God cast out demons and you know the kingdom of God has come upon you. He, the, the power that he had was the power of the Holy Spirit working through him. And it's the power that uh, he would have us have here this morning. And we, we go to Revelation chapter 1 again. We have the seven candlesticks and we have the seven churches there that are mentioned, seven specific churches. But we have the words, the number seven come up here also in the, in the text here in Zechariah. And I, I would like to say this morning that seven is a complete number. When, when Jesus was speaking to those seven churches there in, in Asia Minor, he was speaking completely to all the churches of the complete age. And the, the message he had to the first church, or the Ephesian church, was uh, that uh, they had left their first love. And he said, if you do not repent, I'm going to remove the candlestick from its place. And uh, I've wondered in the history of the church how often this has happened. That that candlestick, that, that thing that is burning, there's life there, there's, there's a spirit of God, there's, there's power there. And because of, of some carelessness in, in that church, uh, that was being lost. And, and Jesus said, if something doesn't change, then that candlestick's going to be removed. And I, I would like to suggest this morning, too, that when that happens, people are uh, that... Uh, that's a word. They're, they're involved with apathy. They're that spiritually numb. They're that spiritually dead that they do not even realize that it happens. So the building of the temple, the, the building of the, the temple of Zerubbabel was, was dependent not on human power. That was an impossibility, I think. But it happened because God uh, had the disposition for it to happen. Then we're moving on from the anointing of Christ to the anointing of his church. And that's where we want to put our focus on here for the remainder of this message here this morning. I would like to turn to Luke chapter 24. We have, uh, if we would continue reading from the text I want to read from, we would see that it seems like immediately after this, when Jesus was taken up uh, and carried into heaven, Luke 24:49. These were the last words, according to the Gospel of, of Luke, that uh, Jesus left with his disciples. And we are his disciples today. He said, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tear you in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. The only way that the early church was going to have the... Uh, ability to bring people into salvation and we go into the book of Acts and we see thousands and thousands and thousands of people coming to the Lord. It was because they were endued with power from on high. And then, like what the text says, it's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. And that is the, the prototype, that is the blueprint, that is the plan that God has had for his church through the ages. When the church has been able to function on that plan, then, then the kingdom of darkness gets a mighty blow. 
And if, if any of you enjoy reading revival and reading history and seeing it has happened time and time and time again, that is, is what, what we see in the book of Acts. Maybe not the specifics of the tongues of uh, cloven, uh, tongues of fire and, and, and some of the manifestations and speaking in tongues, etc. Maybe not the specifics, but the results. I think that if, if the church of Jesus Christ is, is full of the Spirit, is anointed, and it's working by the power of the Holy Spirit, that is what should be the expected results. People turning to the Lord, and there's a oneness, there's a unity, there's a, there's a power there that, that turns the world upside down. So we see there, as, as Jesus commanded them, and, and I know it's the same writer, and I, I've tried to figure out, but we go to Acts chapter 1, and uh, it's said in a little different way there, whether it's actually the same, uh, seems like it is, maybe just some more details. In Acts chapter 1, we have in verse 4, it says, Being assembled together with them, commanded that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many day, days hence. Jumping down to verse 8. But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so this is this is the blueprint. This is this is how it is to, to happen. In Acts chapter two there was a mighty convicting power. There's there's a a, a cleansing that took place. And in, in the meanwhile we have here in Acts chapter one where we have hundred and twenty people in the upper room and they're praying and they're waiting. They're not, they're twiddling their thumbs, they're praying, they're waiting, they're asking for the power that they need for the church to be able to uh, do its work. And I, I know, again, that there have been times in history where this has been repeated, where people realize the church is lacking the power, there's something more, there's something missing, we need something that we do not have, and then they get together and they pray and they pray until they receive a mighty outpouring of the Spirit of God. And the result, first of all, is a cleansing from within the church, and then the result is being able to go into the communities and, and bringing people to salvation. So we had mentioned a little bit, there is a subtle shift that had taken place in the Ephesian church, and, and uh, the by, by outward appearance, they were the true church. They were faithful. There was really nothing that we could put our, our fingers on that they were doing wrong, except Jesus said they had left their first love. The, the, the zeal, their love, their devotion to Christ had dwindled down, and the lamp was about to be removed. And Jesus said, Repent and do the first works, or else I will come quickly and remove the candlestick from its place. And I was thinking of the Apostle Paul. We read about his conversion. It was a miraculous conversion. I think there was people praying. 
Uh, it, it's a very rare situation where you have someone that, uh, that God comes and just knocks them down where they're flat on the ground with this brilliant light and then he's blind and he receives an anointing. And we look at the life of the Apostle Paul and, and just the fruitfulness of that life. And it wasn't because Apostle Paul was an intelligent person. I know he was. You read his epistles, he, he had uh, some ability there. But that is not what he depended on. And I'd like to turn to the first uh, book of Corinthians, chapter 2. 1 Corinthians, chapter 2. And, and Paul gives us here, I think, one of the extremely uh, critical keys to, to how the Lord was able to use him in a way he did. I'm going to read the first five verses here, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring, to you the, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And there's a big difference. They're diametrically opposed to each other, and we stand, understand that here this morning. The wisdom of men and the power of God. And we're either this morning working on the power of man by force, as we see there that the work of God was stopped by, by tremendous human force. Uh, it was stopped, but it was by the power of God that the work went on. And this morning, if we are to be used, we must know how to be filled with the power of God. Let the power of God work through us and have his way. <clears throat> it it uh, seems to me that Apostle Paul is saying that I had to get out of the Spirit's way so he could use me and work through me. And so often it is man that gets in the way. And I, I hear this morning, it's my conviction, I believe, that so little of the potential of God in using men and women that are completely consecrated to him is understood. And we need to, I need to understand, it's a burden my heart has been for a while. I'd like to move on to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, some, some very similar things. We could have looked on 1 Corinthians chapter 2. There's a lot of beautiful things about the work of the Spirit. Uh, talks about the eye not having seen nor the ear heard or entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. Not talking, I don't think, about just our, our place in glory. It's talking about what he has available to us through the Spirit today. Second Corinthians chapter 3, uh, read verses 3 to 8. For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the pistol of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, 
but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. But the ministration of death written and engraved in stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? So this is a glorious thing. And some people, when they look about the letter and the letter killeth, they think right away their mind goes to um, legalism and making a bunch of rules and all that. And I'm not saying it doesn't play into it, but what I understand is that if I'm here in the pulpit, if I'm out on the street, or if I'm teaching Sunday school, whatever it might be, and I'm trying to teach the truth of God's word without his anointing power, that is letter. And that, it says, letter killeth. And so if, if we would endeavor to do anything for the Lord and his work without having the anointing power of God that we're actually uh, putting to death rather than giving life. This is a serious thing. How much, what priority, when we're called upon to work in the Lord's work, what priority does it have to be sure that we're working with the anointing of the Lord rather than something I'm trying to drum up on my own? And I could add to that, how do we go about preparing? And one is we can gather ourselves, and I'm not against it. There's a place for it. We can gather uh, around us a whole lot of books, study helps and commentaries, etc., and all that, and there's a place for it. And understanding the meaning of the words is important. Uh, don't get me wrong. But if that is the extent of our preparing, then, then it's, I trust it's going to be letter. But if we get on our knees and say, Lord, I don't understand. I need you. I need you to give me wisdom. I need your input. I need your spirit. I need your power. I, I can't do this, Lord. Uh, and, and a lot of our time spent on our knees just crying out to the Lord that he would give us of his divine and fresh uh, revelation from heaven. And that that is what I would suggest would be the right approach to to preparing. And that if, if, is there such a thing as being inoculated? We've heard this, but there, the, the, the truth of, in our head is not getting down to where it's going to make a difference in, in our lives. And that, that is, that's the work of God. It's not a work of man. Man cannot do that. And I, I could have spent a, a long time in, in John 14, the like from about verse 12 on, on through John 16, it, uh, specifically Jesus giving instruction for his disciples, preparing for his departure and the coming of the Holy Spirit to take his place. And in John 16, he specifically says, I'm putting it in my own words, you are going to be better off that I leave because I go to the Father and I'm going to send the Spirit and, and he's going to equip you. And he's going to equip you that when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. This is something that human beings cannot do. They cannot bring conviction on people's lives. And uh, the conviction of sin, and if you read about revival, that is a key element. Sometimes there's been revival where people are under strong conviction 
and it'll go on all night. People do not leave that place. It's still the next morning, uh, 7 o'clock in the morning, there's still people there because they want, they, they're not going anywhere until they get right with God because of mighty convicting power. And Jesus said when he comes, that is what he will do. And so why he needs his instruments that are full of the Spirit, and you can expect that the convicting power of sin should be an element that is in the, in the uh, process. If the Word of God is being preached and there's sin around, and the sin is just staying there and it's not being dealt with, something is wrong. God intends for his word to get through and then change and transform people's lives. That's the intention of God's word. And that is what is to happen. Uh, Turning yet to Galatians chapter 3. The, the, the Galatian church is an apostasy, and apostasy was, how do I explain it? They, they were putting trust into things like circumcision, and circumcision is not a right or wrong issue in itself, but they were insisting that that is what it takes to be right with God. And Apostle Paul was very strongly opposed to that, and you could go Acts chapter 15 and see there also how strongly he was opposed to that idea. And the reason was because they were putting their trust into something that man can do without the Holy Spirit power of God rather than uh, trusting in the Spirit. And I'd like to read just uh, maybe the first five verses here in Galatians chapter 3. O foolish Galatians who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you. This only what I learn of you. Receive ye the spirit of the, by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Are ye so foolish, having begun in the spirit, that ye are now made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it yet be in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he by it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? We could go on reading that, by the way, that the latter part, Starting in verse 14, on down to the end of chapter 3, he's explaining about the promise of the Father. And I think I, I've done some teaching on that earlier. Uh, tremendous uh, insight of what promise of the Father means if you look at Galatians chapter 3. But he's, I think he's expounding on that because they were putting their trust. In, and if I, I know this is much broader than this, and this is maybe a very simple explanation but my understanding of the works of the law would be that we are trying to do and obey God by human power. By, by me making my own efforts, trying to obey what we have in the Holy Scriptures, it's impossibility. We need to have the Holy Spirit of God uh, dwelling within us and empowering us and giving us the grace that is necessary to be able to carry out this high law that we have. And that the Old Testament, I think, one of the purposes of God giving the law was just that. It was proven over and over again that man in his own efforts could not obey God. And we have, we have now the provision that is needed to obey God. 
the works of the law versus the hearing of faith. We, we come to Christ. We trust that in him and the spirit of Christ coming in and dwelling in us, that he, that's the only possible way we can be equipped to live a life of victory and a life that can be useful for the, for the kingdom of God. So I want to finish up here by thinking a little bit the person of the Holy Spirit. I think sometimes when we think of the Holy Spirit, we think of a force. We think of some force of power. And it is that, but it is much more that the Holy Spirit is a person. It's the third person of the Trinity. And if we were thinking of the Trinity a little bit, uh, we have the baptism of Christ and... uh, Of course, we have Christ there, and we have this voice from heaven, the Father speaking, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we have the Holy Spirit coming upon Christ in the form of of the visible form of a dove, uh, coming upon Christ. And and from that moment on, Christ is full of the Holy Spirit, and and he maintained his life that way uh, throughout the remainder of his time on earth. He was praying for, I believe, received the baptism of the Holy Spirit upon himself. So you have the Father, he's, he's up in heaven, he's blessing his Son. We have Jesus, at that point he was down here on the earth, and he was carrying out the will, but he was equipped, he was enabled, he was given what he needed for his ministry through the, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And, then, and each and every one of the of the Trinity has, it's, it's one God, they have three specific uh, roles they play. Now let us understand a little bit that we have Christ, he's ascended up there, he's at the right hand of the Father, and he has sent the Spirit. We had that happen on the day of Pentecost. So when we're thinking of the divinity, we're thinking of the Trinity, we have God, he's up in heaven. We have Christ at his right hand. He's interceding for us. But the one that's down here on earth is the Holy Spirit. And I personally believe that Jesus said that you can blaspheme against me. You can say all kinds of evil things and, and, and it will be forgiven you. He said you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. It will never be forgiven either in this life nor the next. The reason is because the Holy Spirit is the one that's doing the actual contact. And if that actual contact is is gotten out of the way, then there's no way to have any contact with God. You understand that? That's the role of the Holy Spirit. He's here with us this morning. Uh, The Father is up there in glory. So the the Holy Spirit is is the the intimate contact. What I know of God is revealed to me through the Holy Spirit. What I understand of Jesus Christ has to be revealed through the Holy Spirit. And uh, whatever work that I would do for God has to be done through the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is not present, then the work does not happen. And I, I, we understand that if we do not have the Spirit of Christ, it says that there in Romans 8, that we, that we are none of His. But I do believe there can be a difference between Christ being resident. He needs to be resident in our lives. There can be a difference between Him being resident and Him being president. Uh, president is the one is in charge. President is the one that is calling the shots. President is the one that is ruling. And so, 
if, if Christ isn't president, if, or, or, yeah, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit isn't president, then we can, it can be touch and go as, as, as far as our effectiveness. It can be touch and go as far as our relationships with one another, etc. So the thrust of my message getting to the core of the matter is, are you full of the Holy Spirit? How much does it matter? Do you desire to be full of the Holy Spirit no matter what the cost may be? How easy it is for my own desires, my own plans, my own thinking, my own opinions, my own will to be in, in, in control and how greatly that can hinder. You know that we have it there in Ephesians chapter 5, a commandment that we must be full of the Holy Spirit. And someone has said that's as much of a commandment as it is, thou shalt not commit adultery. You must be full of the Holy Spirit. That is a commandment we have from the scriptures. And that they went as far as to say, I don't remember exactly who I'm quoting, but it went as far as to say that we are responsible for all the work of God that could be done that's not done if we're not full of the Holy Spirit. We're accountable before God of what is not taking place, that should be taking place if we be full of the Holy Spirit as we're commanded to be. And it's a given to understand that if we're lusting after worldly things, if I'm pursuing earthly wealth, or if I have an unforgiving spirit, I have wrong attitudes towards, towards others, or if I have lost my zeal for the things of God, if I have neglected time alone in, in, in the Word, a time of prayer, if I have ne neglected my burden for others, if I'm listening to wrong music, if, if I have this problem that I just fly off the handle, you think the Holy Spirit's in control of your life if you're angry and, and saying, doing things that are not pleasing to God. Absolutely not. How much does it matter? How much, how important are we going to make it that our lives are instruments of the Holy Spirit who can use us and, and, and use us for whatever he wants for to be carried out? Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. That's the blueprint that God has for us this morning. And God would have us to take this seriously before him. And we can be concerned about people around us we see. And I, I think if we were full of the Holy Spirit as God would desire, we would see the realities of heaven and hell. And we see all these people all around us, and we know they're living in sin. We know they're on a straight path to the pits of hell forever, and it doesn't bother us. And I don't think God would have it to be that way. I think he would have us to fill us and, and to reveal the realities of, of eternity and the realities of what he has placed us here in this earth to do about it. And the burden we have for these things, the burden we have for church, the burden we have for church that is on, on a path of apostasy that's moving further and further away from God and closer and closer to the world. 
And uh, as we're full of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ is groaning within us and, 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 and we're not conformed to that. Something needs to happen. Shall we bow our heads for prayer? Thank you, Father, that you have loved us this morning. We thank you for Zechariah and that beautiful vision he had. That olive tree that forever was bearing oil, that anointing, that power that equipped the men of God to carry out your work in the old times. And we know that has happened over and over again. We know, Father, that you would like for us this morning to look into your word and see it's by your spirit that you carry out your work here on this earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We ask for a song. <laughs>